0: Welcome to Blue State Conversations. This is our place to discuss the political theory from all sides, bridging the political divides that split our society. Hello, everyone. I'm Will, and this is Matthew. I'm back again. And this is our show. Here's the opening problem that we're going to discuss in today's episode A couple has a son, the couple then grows apart and separates. The father is accused by the mother of being unable and incompetent to care for their son and fights for sole custody with no visitation. The father asks for a jury trial and the court denies him saying it is not in their procedures. Has his rights been violated? If you believe they have not, but I believe they have, do I have the right to assault you? After all, you support taking rights away and that's violence. So the question we wanna ask during this show is when is it time for violence? So what do you think about that, Matthew?
1: Well, I think uh, generally for those of us in society, we are very easily able to identify interpersonal violence. You know, somebody hits a woman, right? That one's easy, you don't do that. Uh, somebody hits a guy in a bar and self-defense, right? We're able to figure out self-defense, we're able to figure that out. And then on the other end, we're able to figure out the really big wars, right? World War One, World War II, Axis versus allies. That's very easy for us to figure out. What I think where we struggle is when we're talking about groups within the same group. So for example, what do you do if, what are Democrats versus Republicans? If you think somebody's a tyrant, but they are in the same country as you, that's a little bit more hard to figure out. What do you do in terms of Christians versus atheists or Christians versus Muslims, right? They're not nations, they're groups of people. How do you differentiate between that group of Muslim and that group of Christians? That question I think is a lot harder and you can see it sort of playing out even just in modern day headlines where you're seeing headlines talking about mostly peaceful. So I think Ben Shapiro put it best when he was saying OJ Simpson was mostly peaceful for the entirety of the night. (laughs) You you have those things where, okay, so where are we figuring out what time is violence okay? What time is it not okay in terms of... Groups versus other groups. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a big question coming up. You have Antifa, you have the Proud Boys, there's been street battles, you have people showing up to other people's houses, and maybe they're not beating up the person in that house, but they've arrived in front of their house. Which is intimidating. Which is intimidating, right? But according to those people, the person inside that house is a tyrant, an evildoer, a moron, an idiot, a monster, all of these things. Mm -hmm. And so it's okay to do that. So, what I think is important is just sort of ex- examine several of these philosophies that have been put forward and then see what we can maybe come up with uh, an answer that'll be helpful in solving how we should move forward.
0: Right. And you mentioned people standing outside of somebody's house. I know there were two situations recently one where a bunch of people went and they were armed in front of somebody's house and they stood there and they pretty much stood peacefully, but some of them shouted. And police were called, but police didn't haul any of them away or investigate any of them or take them off to jail. And then there was another time where instead there were a lot of younger people and people of color who kind of locked arms and sat on the person's front lawn and they were all taken to jail. And then they were all simultaneously given felony charges to battle, which were eventually dropped. But the felony charges were based off of they were protesting a situation that has never become a trial, and the felony charge was that they were impeding some form of a trial, which was fascinating because this was about the what is it, Brianna Taylor? The Brianna Taylor case, exactly, yeah. where they actually do have a legitimate you know thing where there was a police officer and she was killed, and there she was sleeping when it happened. So the uh, she was an EMT actually. She was an EMT. Oh, she was an EMT. Yeah. Yes, that's what it was. It looks similar I know, in the photos. Mm Mm-hmm. In which case, you know, so you have even these two different groups where some people are saying, well, if only these people, if they were armed, then they wouldn't have been hauled off to jail. And maybe they're right. Maybe they're not. But at the same case, we still have two groups of people outside of somebody's house being intimidating.
1: Right. And then you can go back to the Hatfields and McCoys, right? You have two groups who basically shot at each other over politics, local politics then there's Western frontier justice and people are saying, well, we don't want frontier justice back. So that's why we let the police handle it. Then the contention back is the police have a systemic problem. So how do you, how are you going to solve these sorts of things in terms of when is it time to commit? Cause I think the big thing as well is once you commit to violence, you, you have to commit to it, right? Once you've decided you have to commit to it, you know, you can't say, look, we're here to intimidate somebody and we're here to fight for our rights, but like only if it's, Wednesday and uh, we can go go home and have dinner before this is over you have to fully commit to what you're saying these things are otherwise even if your cause is just it's not going to go very well for you so I think the first one we've sort of been discussing in in the abstract is that speech is violence this is kind of the, the philosophy going on right now that speech in and of itself constitutes violence
0: does it? I mean, you could say really mean things to me, but I wouldn't count that as violence. It might give me a high, like I'm being attacked and it might send my adrenaline levels through the roof, but that doesn't mean that it's violent.
1: Right. And so the response to this has been that, what about slander and defamation? Aren't those attacks on your character? Because the libertarians would say that the non-aggression principle, the NAP, would say that it's interference on person and property, right? That's Mm -hmm. the libertarians stop it. But what some people would say is, well, your character and your reputation is part of your person. So why isn't an attack on that also violence? So that the response to that problem has been that speech is violence. I I've got an article from the, the New York Times that tried to explain this sort of thing. And what they said was they were comparing Milo and Charles Murray. This was the big one at the time mm-hmm. where this was all the way back from 2017 when Milo was big. And Charles, they were both kicked out of universities, and there were a lot of arguments about what universities should allow
0: at their school. In course. respect to?
1: In respect to speech, in terms of speakers that could be allowed on campus that were considered controversial. Mm-hmm. So, for example, they said that Milo would be a constant stress on your nervous system mm. because the words he brought as a provocateur, he would spend a lot of time in that that stress area because he would constantly be bringing things that was abusive in the language so it would be a physical effect to you and that there's nothing to be gained from debating him for he's not offering so this is an actual quote from the New York Times there is nothing to be gained from debating him for debate is not what he is offering unquote then they go on to talk about Charles Murray and they say that Uh, quote, it is offered as a scholarly hypothesis to be debated, not like a grenade, unquote. You're wondering what it is, right? Well, they're saying that uh, Charles Murray argued that genetic factors help account for racial disparities in IQ. Isn't that racist? So why should he be allowed? Because again, they're saying, oh, we can have an academic debate about whether or not being black means you're a criminal,
0: (laughs) right? That isn't that insanely racist? I would consider that to be insanely racist. You can't just deploy an entire people group as being violent just because of their color of their skin. Right. But
1: Milo doesn't hold that position. Milo at the time was holding that you're responsible for your own actions. So why is Milo, who has a much more mainstream view on race relations, different? Well, they're saying, well, just because of the way he delivers it. Well, see, now we're getting into viewpoint discrimination. So the issue here, and I think you've brought this up, who's deciding? right? Who's deciding? Who who do you think is deciding in these cases?
0: I would say the people who should be deciding it are the people who are listening. So the viewers or the audience, but oftentimes it's whoever is reporting on it. So whoever wrote that specific New York Times article, the one who is responding to it, is the person who is deciding because if you get enough people to respond the same way over publications in our country or across the world, you have essentially decided what the issue is, even if you've rewritten the issue to be something that is more comfortable with your viewers or your viewpoint,
1: right? You know, and then, of course, many people consider Bernie to be a communist. Does that mean that? Is that violent because communism is a violent idea? Or, They're starting
0: a revolution, or if there is some shooter and they write a manifesto and they include a bunch of people in it, are those people that were included in the manifesto automatically a violent reference?
1: Right. Uh, I think that happened with the New Zealand shooter. Yeah, uh, they, he listed uh, several. I think he listed Trump in there, mm-hmm. which you know is clearly attention getting.
0: Right. Well, he also, I believe, he referenced Spyro the Flying Dragon as well.
1: Yeah. Right. Uh, yeah. I, I. don't. I don't. I don't specifically remember that one. But it, however, yeah, I, mean, really. I,
0: I will say I'm pulling that directly from Candace Owens, like the most watched uh, clip on what is it that that political channel that all it does is post like the Congress, the congressional hearings. C-SPAN. Exactly. C-SPAN.
1: Well, yeah. So I mean, you've got those things. So who's now deciding which one's is which? And if we're saying that it's going to be the listeners. That's an important thing. And I th- think the reason for that is when you have speech as violence, there's no limiting principle to that because any speech can be declared to be violent by any group of people. By whoever's listening. hmm Right. So, I think that even if we decide to let the listeners decide, that still has an issue in terms of you have to figure out how many listeners counts as violence. Are we just saying, well, as long as 51%, it's just tyranny of the majority in terms of what's okay.
0: Well, we've already decided as a country that we don't make our decisions based off tyranny of the majority, given that we hire representatives through Congress, as well as the executive branch who is not elected by majority rule, but by using the electoral college.
1: Right. But yeah, again, you can go on the other way. When somebody comes up with the statement that men are men and women are women, is that now violence against the transgender community? If that violence, you're saying, well, of course that's violence. Well, then is it also violence to say that we should be burning down churches, which Sean King recently did? So now everybody's deciding which things are particularly violence and you have no limiting principle on how do we communicate across which things are violence which things are not.
0: So that's actually very interesting. So you mentioned like the transgender community because I was reading a post on Facebook in my smaller LGBTQ+ community and somebody like posted a picture of it was a meme that they made essentially to say that just because we're very accepting people doesn't mean that we are accepting of pedophiles. And I thought that was really funny because you just said, what if somebody says something like that and it's considered violence? Well, they're making a statement saying almost violently that they're not for pedophiles. And of the same thing, like what I would say here is that while it is up to the individual to decide what is violence, there are lots of times where the groups themselves will unilaterally say something about another group of people, whether or not the whole group holds to that view or not.
1: Right. And the thing is when violence allows for defense. So if that's what you're seeing, if I speak something violent, I can physically respond. So that's an important thing there. Are we going to say that you can have violent speech, but you're not allowed physical defense? That's a tough one to do because fighting words are a Supreme Court doctrine. So again, the limiting principle is not really here. It's not easily definable, and that communication doesn't really happen. So the society that generally agrees on things will be able to figure something out like this where it's generally in the middle, but it won't be able to figure out extremes. And if the society is divided, it won't be able to stop itself because there's no principle that limits which things are violence, which things are not, and which speech is okay, because it'll be completely two groups or three groups or five groups, All pointing at each other, you're violent, I get to defend myself. Especially if you're doing identity politics, then obviously.
0: I was just going to say, that happens all the time. We saw it on the primary debates earlier this year, where somebody says something violent, quote unquote, towards another candidate, and immediately, hopefully, a good moderator would turn and say, hey, would you like to respond to that? And then you just take 10 minutes for these people to go bat at each other until the ratings have forgotten that there's anyone else on stage.
1: You can see that there were definitely people who got more time than,
0: than others. And I
1: think this leads right into the next philosophy that we have, which was an outgrowth of this that we saw. And, I, and I've sort of labeled the general feeling of this rather than giving it a proper
0: name, but the idea of punch the Nazi. That is the name. Right. That is an official name right there.
1: Yeah, (laughs) right. It's kind of a nebulous philosophy, but it, it very much boils down to that. There's an acceptable list of ideas. If you're outside that list, you're an evil idea. Fighting against evil is moral. So fighting is a completely acceptable way to do it. You can get them fired. You can punch them. You can attack them. You need to defeat them because it's a glorious war. You know, there's the good guys. And there's the bad guys. I think we talked about this in a lot. I was of shows. just
0: gonna say we said that everybody is thinking, or we should all be on the same mindset that we're on the side of the angels. But in this case, sometimes when you have something like punch the Nazi, there are other people on the other side, and they're like, "Whoa, we're not Nazis, but we don't agree with what you believe. That doesn't make us evil."
1: Right, and that these evils that are supposedly out there, we need to go defeat them. And they do have some legitimacy here. This is why it's a very attractive philosophy because there are evil ideologies of right? course if you ask any conservative they can list socialism communism right off the top of their head if you ask any leftists they can list off unfettered deregulated capitalism and i don't know landlords right <laughs> they can figure those out real quick those responses can come real quick about what are bad
0: things in society i'd like to say that landlords should be transitioned to slumlords not being the same thing
1: <laughs> right. Right. That that's an argument you would hear from a lot of people. I mean, AOC just said it herself that the landlords are part of a problem that she sees in society, that they are oppressive towards the poor. So I think there is a really good feeling that comes from fighting against evil. Absolutely. And that's why this is I think this is why this is very attractive. You have an evil, a bad, a wrong a immorality and you're defeating it it gives a lot of purpose to your life right you need to go to work and make money so that you can fight that thing you need to go out and
0: organize and activate and get with people it gives a lot of purpose to your life it's very fulfilling as a metaphysical thing everyone is looking for purpose in life so that is why they would find something and then attach to it Somebody had to bring to them this idea of punch the Nazi, and then it became a huge part of their lives because it is morally foundational to how they respond to other people. So I guess the question becomes how do we respond to something like that?
1: And I think we come back to the original problem
0: who's deciding? And the answer is they are. They've decided. In fact, it's more that if you're against me, then you are a Nazi that's the very basic principle of that philosophy
1: right and it, it doesn't have to be Nazi it can be what's the the right wing version better dead than red Oof. remember that one Oh yeah but really it's that idea of you're unacceptable and you need to be defeated okay that's great there are evil people out there this doesn't mean that we're sitting around here talking about well you know I think Iran has a point no no they're for sponsoring terrorism <laughs> right <laughs> there are things that are unacceptable but th- We have to have a system where we can all sort of go, this is how we judge our values off of, right? And this is how we make decisions. And so we can communicate with each other over that framework so that it becomes very obvious which things we're talking about. Because otherwise, if we're just saying, look, I find you unacceptable. Well, that's very easy to do. I find people unacceptable every day. Let me tell you about some cashier down at the local market basket who was yelling at me that I needed to stand six feet back from the thing, and I was about a, I was 15 feet. So let me tell you what it... Right, we can find people unacceptable very quickly as humans.
0: Mm-hmm. It happened yesterday for me where I was driving on the interstate, and we all went down to one lane, and these two guys were trying to come into the lane, and one of them found a reason to have a problem with the other guy, and the one on the behind was trying to get around the one in front, and so the guy in front moved over to the left as well, and then... Popped his hand out the window and gave him the middle finger like a classy American. So, (laughs) yes, indeed, we can find people to be unsatisfactory every day.
1: I live with a bunch of Irish people, so that's that's just waving hello. (laughs) But exactly. And here's another big problem. You can say that now it's time to punch them. We've entered physical violence. So they can claim self-defense.
0: So you just said that could be physical. So I was down in Texas for the last quarter of last year, and I talked to a number of different people in the office, and they told me, like, we have this thing that we call Southern hospitality. And they're really funny about it, too. They're like, that's not something we do because we just want to be nice to people. It's because you don't know who is armed. So you don't want to piss someone off that you think could shoot you. So if you do produce some form of violence towards that person, they will remind you that they're the one in charge and that you should drive away. And he, he said it in the sense of like you're driving down the road and you want to flip someone off, but you think to yourself, no, I'm not going to do that because if I do that, he might wave his gun at me.
1: Well, again, once you go after him and he decides to punch back, if you're punching with your fist
0: and he's punching with a nine mil, I think he's gonna win that one. And that goes right into our next philosophy. And this philosophy is called an eye for an eye. It is the oldest and most reliable. And the basic principle is hit back just as hard. So if you have a situation where your girlfriend's being chatted up by some guy, you can hit back. Your friend betrays you, you can betray back. Your wife isn't pleasant. You can just be as rude as you want to be. The clear problem is we have a culture built on the assumption that the population almost completely lives by a set of rules that are usually not broken. This is not the case in America, and simply results in a lot of pain and loneliness.
1: Yeah, I mean, really to expand on that, if you have a culture that is all living in a certain area that lives pretty much the same lifestyle, the same way, they have the same sort of demographic traits, it's very easy to have this, well, you were rude to me, so I can be rude back to you, because everyone else understands that you were rude to me. Mm-hmm. So it, it's easy to get away with this system, right? So if you're in high school, somebody bullies you. Fighting back seems really reasonable to everybody around, you,
0: right? Except if you're in some school and they have a complete non-aggression policy, so that if anyone is involved, they just expel everyone involved.
1: Right. But think about how a lot of people react to these sorts of things, where a kid's being bullied, the kid hits back, and then the school expels the kid who hit back. They're going, well, what about the bullies, right? We sort of have this philosophy built in. You hurt me, I can hurt you just as much. This is not a case in America, because America is an incredibly diverse place. It's too big. It can't be a national value system. It might be something that might work on your local level, but it just results in pain because the way I live and the way that I'm from the Northeast way that we use sarcasm and the way we talk to people is completely different from the way people in the south and the midwest do people used to get mad with the way that i did humor and talk to people and i was just having a good time with them so to them they could have responded right back with oh,
0: oh my god i can't believe he's that rude i'm having a good time with him like hey this is just how you talk to people
1: mm-hmm.
0: i've also seen that in the case with coarse language where they're At one of the places where I've worked, it was super common to use different swear words all the time. And to a lot of people, that was perfectly normal everyday conversation. But I'm a consultant now, so I work with a lot of different people in a lot of different companies. And you have to read the room, and over Zoom, that's a lot of fun, but you have to read the room and determine what is this person comfortable with? How should I frame my speech based off of what they are comfortable. And
1: there's the rather famous internet example of just the way Australians speak to each other. The words that you can't say anywhere on the internet <laughs> hmm. in spoken word are just terms of endearment. You say that here, you are, people will expect you to get hit. <laughs> you might even go to court. They'd be considered fighting words in some of these cases. So I think we've kind of gone through a lot of these things. And what exactly should we be doing? Because all of these have strong points and weak points, they address specific things, but we're generally saying these things don't do well on a broad general context on how we can do that. And I think the answer that I'm going to put forward, and I'd like to see what you think about this, is that Western answer, which uh, comes off from a lot of uh, Christian theology, and that's using what's been generally known as just war theory. There's been several interpretations of this. and There are multiple criteria that go along with this. but just before we go into those i wanted to give you just sort of a general header for this and then give me your just your initial reaction to it before we go into the tenants individually the reason for going to war needs to be just and cannot be solely for recapturing things taken or punishing people who have done wrong innocent life must be in imminent danger and intervention must be to protect it. so the catholic church in the 90s said that quote force may be used only to correct a grave public evil For example, aggression or massive violation of the basic human rights of the whole population.
0: What do you think in terms of that? Yeah, so the first thing I would say, this is one of those times where we have to pull from something to create our initial set of wisdoms. So I appreciate that we've pulled from that Christian Western answer because the West is where we're from. However, it does make sense to look into other cultures and see how they view the just war theory. I would say is my first inclination is to think... I wonder what other groups say about that. And my second inclination is that it does make sense that you would want to only go into war except to correct some grave misconduct or issue. The first thing that comes to mind for me is the Holocaust. You know, there's a reason why you would want to go to war, and that is to protect people. You don't want to go into war just to steal resources. That would be a situation where Americans would wholeheartedly say that is an unjust war. They are just doing that to take over that land so they can dot, 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 the most common one, be in charge of the oil field. Yes,
1: right. That second point is a good one because one of the tenants that is sometimes included but also sometimes not is usually imperative justice, meaning that an injustice suffered by one party must outweigh that suffered by the other in a very significant fashion. Basically, meaning that an injustice needs to be something you yourself have that's very unique to the point that nobody else and their problems approaches that. Obviously, you can see where this can be exploited because
0: anybody can claim that their problems are worse than everybody else. Using the word comparative justice very much brings up the difference between objective and subjective truth. So theoretically, you should be using objective things for your comparative justice. But even viewing the word comparative, I think some people would view that as synonymous with subjective, which is not true.
1: Right. And I I think it may be useful in terms of subgroups within a population in terms of what we're just seeing in america and other countries because we do have an objective thing in terms of what does the law say there's a legal system there's a law and you you can compare it to things inside our legal system to say is this outside of the norm however you can still see where it can be exploited so i do think that this is something that is a way of arguing for it but i do want to actually in a weird thing for a christian to do slightly reject this part as a tenant that we can use so what i want to also follow that up with is competent authority this one is considered basically that only duly constituted authorities can wait so that you have to have a system where the conflict is initiated by an authority and it has to allow a distinction of justice so the idea is that you need to have people who are authorities within the system being the ones who initiate initiated. Now, obviously, this one is an answer to how nations wage war, but I think we can definitely move it from governments down to experts within the field, leaders, right? The idea that random people can just decide, well, I've decided to leave this system because I feel this, right? So in terms of there needs to be somebody saying this, Do you see anything with this that you might want to take issue with, or do you think this is a valid one that we could be using?
0: I think it's tough because if you're looking for someone with authority, a lot of times you have somebody who has a lot of authority, but they don't necessarily have a lot of power that should impact a war or a violent initiative. So the first one that I would think of is the Pope. The Pope has a lot of authority but he doesn't have a lot of violent authority at this point. Maybe he could. Maybe he could stand at the front of some video camera and tell every single Catholic to go and destroy the community mosque. But I think you would find that a lot of people would immediately reprimand somebody for saying something that heinous because that would be a call to arms against a group of people that at this time as a group, they've not done anything. And if there were to be some group of people to raise arms against the Catholics, then they would be considered outliers and terrorists separate from Muslims that go to the general mosque. So I guess where I would take this for is in the United States, for a country, if we were to go to war, first, you have the president who cannot declare war but can send the armed forces somewhere for i think it's up to 30 days and congress can pass the bill to send our troops to war and that's a very clear lines for a competent authority but once you start moving down to people groups i think you'd run into a situation where you're giving the single person too much authority when they haven't necessarily been Elected to that position to help people raise arms against other groups of people, especially in the United States where we are still bound to the laws of this country, regardless of if I go to the, I don't know, someone, whatever, they have a school board. If I went and I was the school board president, I've been elected, that doesn't give me the authority to change laws for the country or to decide that we can go and be violent against other school boards because we don't like them. I'm obviously creating a situation that's ridiculous, but that's that's still the point.
1: Right. So I think these first two ones there that we put forward in this typical Western answer, I think these two are failing. So let's see if we can keep going here. And this one for me is the one that we see a lot and it's called right intention, meaning that force may be used only in a just cause solely for that purpose. Meaning, there's a wrong, you can use force to correct that wrong, but then you're done. This is where I'd see a lot of people would say, Black Lives Matter, but I don't support the organization. This is what they'd be using. As in, they'd say, look, there are racist cops, that needs to be stopped. That's a thing that we should be having political revolutions, we should be doing things. The second that organization starts saying things like disrupt the nuclear family, an end-all private education, that example illustrates we might be getting into a situation where you can actually have more intentions adding on. And it does prevent, in my opinion, that right intention prevents extremists from co-opting a movement. It should, but doesn't always. Right. But for me, it feels that when you hold to that sort of tenant, it's easier to spot. And it's easier to spot when a movement has been co-opted because you can see The shifting intentions. You can see that, oh, this went from we support X thing to, oh, actually, now we support like 15 different things and none of them are connected
0: to our original thing. Of course. Reasoning for something like that would be looking at the bills that the current Congress was trying to pass as far as another bill to support the US economy, where the Democrats bought a $3.4 trillion plan, then they brought a $2 trillion plan. And so the intention of this bill was supposed to be for creating a healthier economy during this time of coronavirus, but instead they're trying to shove a bunch of extra things into this bill that would cause it to cost a lot more, such as bailing out states that have gone bankrupted over a couple decades of poor economics in their state. The coronavirus isn't suddenly a magical time to go fill your coffers with money from the federal government, or at least it's not supposed to be.
1: Right. I mean, you can see things in there like they wanted to bail out the postal system.
0: The postal system has been failing for decades, longer than either you or I have been alive.
1: Right. So then you see in there money for the Pentagon. What is it? Are we shooting coronavirus? Like, why, why is there money for the Pentagon? And you see that creep, but they actually went. Someone actually went and they said well, why don't we pass the stuff that we all agree on and then we'll just, we'll see about the rest of it. And people actually said no Mm -hmm. from both sides. And that's where you can just see that it's, that corruption has come in because you don't have good intentions anymore in terms of, actually solving the issue.
0: They want to solve the issue and get their stuff in there too. And now that means we're going to have to handle it in the worst possible way, which is to have the president sign four executive orders to do the same thing, but they're not going to be able to give those benefits using the same ways as before. They're going to have to create new bodies to actually put them in place versus if Congress had passed the portions of the bill that they had agreed with, they could deploy those funds in the best possible way and the most efficiently.
1: Right. And what happens when you end up with a president that, for example, the, I remember the president several years ago, he declared the border crossing and illegal immigration an issue, right? So he signed it as a emergency order. And at the time, obviously, there was a lot of cheering for that because, again, they were saying this is a big injustice. They were saying he's a competent authority and he has the right intention. Well, now you have governors. Coming out and saying racism is a public health emergency. They're saying racism is a comparative justice issue. Very hard to argue against that one. Mm-hmm. Governors, they are a competent authority, and fighting racism is a pretty good intention. I don't know how you're going to argue against fighting racism, right? But now you can see where, but included in all those things are that person's pet projects, it, that their ideas, and so you can see where a lot of this stuff is going. But the thing I do want to say. And I think the reason why I'm going to accept this one for myself, and I don't know about you or anybody else who's listening, is that right intention is a way that we can communicate to other people. Because as long as somebody is a human being, they're able to determine somebody's intentions fairly easily. They're able to determine causes and effects. That's something that's innate within a human's just ability to reason. So that's why I'm going to accept this one as a way for us to communicate. Because that's what I'm trying to look for in terms of how can we communicate which times are we saying, look, that violence is okay for people in society to engage in. Those riots are for a good cause or are those riots not, right? It's the intention of it and why are we doing things? I think we've lost a lot of that in terms of, look, they're rioting against racism. Racism's bad, so it's fine. Rather than, okay, what are they intending to do with it? What are they intending to fight against, right? why are these guys showing up with guns to the state house in Michigan? Mm-hmm. Is it because they have a good intention or we can discuss over those frameworks and it's easier for us to do that. So I'm going to accept that one instead of the common authority and comparative justice ones. But again, it's leaving it up to you, whether you're going to accept that one or not. And then the viewers, whether they would.
0: So I definitely have another comment about right intention. So the Portland protests, if the intention was to remove people from the police force who are committing violence against black people or racist cops, then the right intention would be to remove them. I was reading a news article that said that over a million dollars was spent in overtime pay of the police force that was fighting the violent protesters. And I just sat there and smiled because it's just, if you're if the right intention was trying to make sure that these police officers would have their lives ruined by this violence, they just had their pensions fulfilled and their retirements handled and now they have enough money to buy a new couch and a TV because they worked overtime for days on end. So, if the intention was to destroy them economically, that would be considered a completely flawed experiment. So I would say it would be very helpful for some of these protests to start out and say, here is our intention, and everybody can agree to it, and once you meet these demands, we'll stop rioting. But I don't really think that's what's happening out there. So
1: I think that actually goes kind of into the next one, which is the probability of success. right? So that this is the idea that um, violence and arms cannot be used in a feudal cause or a case where disproportionate measures are required to achieve success. When people might be hearing that, they might be going, well, you should fight for what you believe in. I think what they're saying is, we're not just going to be an IRA, right? We're not going to simply go, well, we can win if we just murdered everyone. You know what I mean? Theoretically, if you wanted to take down the United States government because they were oppressing your thing, you could just simply nuke Washington, D.C. If they're oppressing what? If the United States was oppressing everybody in the country, if you believe that. Ah, Why not just nuke Washington, D.C.? Right Now it's all the issue, right? We'd get everybody and we'd have to start all over again. Well, obviously, you just murdered thousands of innocents because you achieved your goal, right? And you had the right intention. They had all those things. But I think what it's addressing is, are you just going to use measures to gain your goal no matter the cost, no matter whether it's going to work or not, but rather there should be an outline of a plan for success in what you're doing? I think protests have those, right? Protests have a good probability of success. They're things that work, right? Nonviolent, and even sometimes violent. They are things that work. So I think that one I'm also going to accept as well, but it does sometimes read when you're reading these definitions as, if you're not sure it's going to work, then that's it. I think it's probability, meaning there's an actual chance of this being a feasible, workable plan.
0: Well, sure, if you have a situation where the probability of success is zero, it seems rather ridiculous to actually try it.
1: Right. And again, if you're saying, well, my plan will work, but whether my goal is going to work, the success should be applied to the overall point and goal of what you're trying to accomplish. I just want to make sure that's expanded. So far, the the tenets that I'm accepting for how I want discussion to be conducted is the right intention and the probability of success. I don't know if that's something you're going to be accepting or not, but uh, I'll let you have the last one probability
0: of success. Right. So for the probability of success, I would say that it does make sense that you need to have a plan and that that plan should have goals that are achievable. And I think the probability of success and right intention very much go hand in hand, because if you have the right intentions and the probability of success is fairly high, then you have an actual plan that can accomplish what you're looking to accomplish. Then we also have The Last Resort, where force may be used only after all peace and viable alternatives have been seriously tried and exhausted or are clearly not practical. It may be clear that the other side is using negotiations as a delaying tactic and it will not make meaningful concessions. So for Last Resort, I really think that a lot of times for the violent protests, what comes out as we say, this is the last resort. Nothing worked before this. And in my response, I kind of put out how it's very much more like gun control, where we have lots of things in place, but then what happens is somebody goes, they shoot somebody out of school, and then everybody's very upset for a while, and then it all dissipates. And so I think the difference between now and versus some other time is that people are angry and they're staying angry, and that's going to produce a lot more of a result than in the past where people were angry, but not for very long. So being last resort now isn't necessarily true, but it's that extra pressure that people feel that they have the right intention, they think that they're going to succeed by doing this, and we've decided that we're at our last resort. What do you think about that, Matthew? I think for me, with a lot of these protests, the issues that they're protesting
1: haven't even gone through. The channels we've all agreed these things should go through, right? I mean, then what we, channels are those? So if, I guess the the most easy example to come up with would be the Derek Chauvin case, right? With with George Floyd, these protests started immediately, right? Like the couple of days, day after, of. yeah, day of, like the next day, right? And then the riot started a few days later, and he was arrested, right? He's been arrested, being charged. Is this really your last resort? There's nothing else you can do.
0: So, this is a classic case where the news has said this is a last resort. That's why they're doing this. And the talking head said it, and now everybody else on Facebook repeats it.
1: Right. And that's why I do agree that all of these can be co opted by bad actors in terms of they can, anybody can say, like, look, this is the last resort, as in we've tried for years, and so now we need to do this. Right. But we've, you need to be applying these in terms of competent authority and comparative justice is it actually going to be your last resort? Is there nothing else? That's why I think it's very clear because we this was a big argument during the Iraq war, right? This was, is this actually the last resort, right? Because when Bush said, we're going into Iraq, we're going into Afghanistan, a lot of the counter arguments were, well, is this really the last, do we have no other option? And the reason that Bush's side won is because bin Laden And Al-Qaeda had been to the negotiating table multiple times. He'd been captured several times by Bill Clinton and then released. We had tried those things. Continuing to try for peace was clearly not practical because there were two giant buildings in flames, right? Practically is out the window. We've been tried. We've done all those things. So I think also last resort cannot be construed as you may have a theoretical things, but there's also a practical component. Can those things be done? Right? And I think that'll apply to, you know, we've talked a lot of recent stuff, but in terms of just, let's say you've got Christians and Muslims in this country that are going, right? What do you, what do you do in terms of that conflict? I think you need to try litigation. You need to try activism. You need to try all those things before you actually have to go to the, your rooftop Korean mode, right? The idea that. A lot of times, last resort can really rise up the ranks because people enjoy it as a first resort because force does solve problems. Unfortunately, in the immediate term, at any rate. So, I think for me, that last resort is important, but it does need to be considered last resort. And I guess I've sort of discussed as part of this proportionality, so that there's the benefits of a conflict must be proportionate to the evils or harms that are expected. Right. So. Basically, when you go to war, when you go into a conflict, when you attack something, there will be harm done. And I think this is the thing we've really forgotten in terms of our political and social discussions. It's very easy to say those guys are wrong. If you think about it, you had people who were anti-racist activists yelling racial slurs at black Americans who were supporting the opposing side. Right. How is that not racism? Right. And you're going, so hitting racism with just racism meant to make them believe your side that's not at all
0: proportionate. you're literally bringing up the meme about white liberals telling black people what they need to do to be safe
1: right and then you can also see this as well like what was it the uk did right the uk to combat pornography decided to block all pornographic sites so the uk installed porn blocks they were supposed to install porn blocks And the idea, obviously, is pornography is detrimental to people, right? So you would say that, look, pornography is a growing problem, it's a growing thing, this is our last resort, we need to do this thing here. Or maybe even not last resort, you're saying, look, before we go and shut down these companies, we're going to try to put a block on them, right? It got abandoned, a lot of it, because it just did not work, because it required so much time and resources, and they were literally fighting their own citizenry who wanted to access it. So is your benefits of establishing a semi-police state monitoring actually better than the s- social harms? That's that's a question, and, and obviously as a conservative, I'm not going to be supporting pornography, but at the same time, I'm going to kind of realize, maybe we shouldn't be having the government monitoring every single computer and internet traffic in the entire country. Maybe that shouldn't be it, and then maybe I should be making a moral argument because the benefit of, okay, whew, kids aren't watching pornography anymore. I mean, we have like a police data it's kind of 1984 or like the handmaid's tale or something like that but like hey we solved the problem it's you know the patrick we saved the city Mm -hmm. right i was just
0: gonna say that same meme came up when we were saying congratulations we just protected everyone from covid and it's showing like the complete smoldering city because the entire like economy is somewhere between ruined and functional
1: right (laughs) exactly Uh, i mean kind of to bring back in Our first one where we were talking about that mostly peaceful sort of thing.
0: They did the same meme for that one, too. We're like, look, we solved racism burning buildings.
1: Right. I mean, you have an ABC reporter in front of a building, and he's saying that, look, it's a peaceful demonstration. And in the back of him, there's this giant building. It's on fire, right? Well, that's not peaceful. Mm -hmm. Now, we should then judge whether or not these things are justified. But once we start lying over, which like my side is altruistic all the time and is always just, and your side's the one that has to explain why uh, it it exists. Once we start going into that. So that's why these, the, the ones that I'm going to accept here are proportionality, last resort, probability of success, and right intention. I think if we can take those four things and we can put those together and then we can consider aspects of competent authority and comparative justice in a little bit of a more apocryphal sense we can take those and we can apply them to the way that we go about our groups versus other groups i think that we can have a much better society because we'll be able to talk with these other groups in terms of they accept these terms we accept those terms we're able to talk to each other now rather than talking past each other so i'm going to accept those ones and then i think that We as a society have forgotten these because we're not able anymore to determine which one of us are going to be the one in charge. And when we're not able to determine who's in charge instead of our values together, we have people who are in charge instead of our values. Who's in charge becomes so important because the only way you get to speak or be or exist or move forward is when someone who agrees with you is in charge. That makes the presidential election you can cheat for that, right? Mm-hmm. Because look, we, we're trying to save the world, right? And we can do it, and and it's in the last resort because these guys are so and so bad. And these, right? You can't, we can't have Trump. We can't have these things. You know, I mean, look what he's doing. You know, he's kicked the transgenders out of the military. He's a racist over here. He said something about the Mexican judge, and so we need to get him out of there. So look, I'm sorry we're cheating, but it's for a good cause. And so we can make that argument, but once we accept that, look, we need to have these things. And then the other side goes, we need to have these things as well. Once those things are happening, then we can start having conversations that are much better in terms of solving our disagreements. And I think that will eventually lead us to the idea that violence is in actuality violence. And there's a difference between the two because right now it's far too nebulous. So that's why I'm going to accept those ones as just sort of a a framework that I think we need to have the, the culture sort of agree on before anything can be done, because otherwise we're just going to separate into our corners and then punch each other. So I'll go ahead and let you know, let you see what you have here, and let me know which one of these you would like to have as sort of your framework, or maybe you've got a different framework, or maybe you agree with one of the ones above. Let me know what you think there will, and then uh, we'll, we'll throw it back to the listeners.
0: Yeah, so I very much agree with your presentation of right intention, probability of success, and last resort. I would like to think that comparative justice would be looked at through the lens of objective truth and thus be something that I could also use. But the issue with that one, and probably something that I appreciate, is that it allows for a lot of time of deep thought, a lot of time to think, is this my subjective viewpoint or is this objective truth? Is this objectively true? Is this actual justice? Would everyone agree on this? And then would it be true according to my beliefs and their beliefs? Comparative justice is one of those things where if we're able to view the world through an objective lens and talk about those emotional things unemotionally, it should be something that should aid us in trying to figure out how we should or should not use violence. When is it something that is acceptable to use? But you have a lot more background as far as which ones you want to and should use. And I would say for the majority of the people here, they should really focus on that right intention, that probability of success and the last resort and stay away from something that could become extremely emotional very quickly, like the comparative justice and sometimes the last resort, especially since you gave the really good example about how many times we show the last resort as really the first resort or the middle resort and we're just so emotionally fed up that we're saying this is the last resort even though they could have tried so many other things and like you said we see this all the time it happens again and again and again we do it Fairly often, there's always some commentator when you know somebody shoots someone in a school that says, we can't let this keep going, this has to be the end, we're at the end of our rope. And the reality is, we're never at the end of the rope. We've done a lot of things to prevent gun crimes from happening in our schools. Is there more that we could be doing? Probably yes. But first, we have to discuss all the other things we can do that don't remove the freedoms from every single American first, as the Second Amendment protects my access to have a gun should I go through the proper protocols to get one. Just because somebody disagrees with some other different list of things about guns and how they're used doesn't mean that I can't use it for self-defense.
1: Oh, so you don't want a rocket launcher?
0: Oh, that would be awesome, but only in my video games.
1: Right. right. Well, you know, I mean, maybe you're living in a cul-de-sac in the neighbor, two houses down there. In that homeowners association so is just too annoying. No, I'm kidding.
0: So, I should light their house on fire or maybe just the yard or the mailbox?
1: Well, uh, just the house and yard. And that's proportionality, right? That's proportional. Exactly. Exactly. But I do think that this kind of goes back again to, you know, bring up just just sort of the founding thought behind the show is that the answer is never zero, that there's a lot of things that go on because, you know, you brought up how those commentators say, like, we have to do something. We have to. But- have to do something can really lead you into, well, we're going to do something rather than realizing sometimes you may be actually at the best that you can do, given the values that you have, right? Given what you're trying to do, that human error, human intelligence, human nature, all of those things play a part. Are we ever going to end school shootings? Probably not. Even Canada has a shooting every so often. If you you were the most pro-gun person, you'd have to admit, look, every once in a while there's going to be a shooting, right? Now, are you saying that we should still do that? Sure, that's an argument. But to argue every single time that, oh, well, we had a shooting, therefore we must do something. Therefore, it has to be done. And if you're not for this,
0: look, the probability of success here doesn't really exist. The answer is not zero. Well, what you're bringing up is how what they're really saying is because you are for guns, then you are for dead children. And that's not an equal-equal, this does not equal this logic. Right. And I
1: think that's why we do need these things to communicate with each other. Because, again, we can go back all the way up. We have speech is violence, right? Well, which speech is going to be that? Who's deciding? Do we have an ability to say which speech is going to be okay, even if it's edgy or offensive, and then which speech is not? And then are we going to be able to say, okay, those speeches that are not, that still doesn't mean that we need to go out and assault people who hold those, right? That we don't need to punch the Nazi, and we don't need to be in a system where we're just kind of sitting behind our guns, our metaphorical guns, looking at each other going, All right, you, you shoot, I'm going to shoot you, okay, you know? And have this Mexican standoff of a society, which is just, you can't live like that for a long time. You cannot live a life where you're like, well, the Republicans live over there. The Democrats live over there. There's some like weird purple thing that happens over there. There's libertarians. If you go over there and then uh, Maine exists this way, right? There's nothing. You can't have a society like that because it just breaks apart. And there's no way that you can have a discussion over where we want to move the country when that happens. And that's why for me, I'm going to go with those. And I, again, would encourage everybody who's listening, think about the, some of the stuff that we said here and the stuff that we said above, which ones do you think is there a different way that you, maybe you would combine two or more of them? I think a lot of people do not ask themselves this question. When is it time for violence? Because we don't have in ourselves that question. I think we need to consider, are we going with sort of this just war theory? Do you kind of agree with me on which one of these you agree with? How wills approach these individual ones? Do you think that speech is violence? And so we we just need to have a good definition. Do you think that it is okay to punch the Nazis in our society, the sort of fringe beliefs? Do you think that eye for an eye, you know what, it does work because we're all Americans, America is America, and that's going to work. Maybe you think two or more of these should be combined. But I think this question is a very fascinating question for a lot of people to consider because it's not something we ask ourselves that often, but it's something that is important today. Uh, Thanks for listening, and if you have a comment, question, or rant, we'd love to hear it. Email us at bluestateconversations at gmail.com, follow us on Twitter and Facebook, and find our articles on Medium. If you like this podcast, share it with a friend. No matter what state you're in, blue, red, or purple, there is always room at the table to discuss your views in a way that lets us all grow.